thank you to the musicians and to Nick for leading us. What a wonderful time of worship. Um, Time of Thanksgiving, as we heard this morning, a little bit about where that came from. Thanksgiving, it's amazing. Um, How holidays kind of become just routine and we forget the real reasons for them. Um, But as we look today, I'm going to start going through the book of Philippians, if you want to turn there. Um, In the book of Philippians, there's much thanksgiving given, much reminder of us of that. And so as we start that, we're going to, I hope, be reminded of how much we have to be thankful for. Even in times where we have struggles and lots of hard times, there's much to be thankful for. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you. Lord, I, I know I don't thank you enough. And I know that I possibly couldn't thank you enough for the gift of your son, for the gift of salvation, and, and all the other blessings you've given us. But I, I want to raise my voice this morning and give praise to you for that. And God, I, want, I, I just pray that you would teach us to praise you more. That you would teach us to praise you more in our hearts. Deep down, that our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving for you for one another, for the gift of the church that you've given us, and for all the other blessings in our lives. I pray, Lord, that that would be the the primary message in this book, and that we would draw together closer in unity under Christ. In his name I pray, amen. So we're going to have a little bit, uh, just going through the background of the book, this may be more of a lesson than a sermon, if you will. Um, but it's, there's some really interesting things, I think, to understand that will help us understand what Paul is teaching when he writes this letter. Um, the cultural context is important. We teach that in hermeneutics, and so I don't want to neglect that, um, the background of the city, the background of the writer, right? So, of course, Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul. And it's during his first imprisonment at Rome. So he is in prison. He is bound in chains when this is written. And I, we don't fully understand. It's a different type of prison than what we're used to. But he is not free when this happens. He is, he is um, guarded by Roman soldiers. And so, and of course, several of his epistles were written in the same time period. And so, like, that's where I, when you go back to Ephesians and you see the armor that Paul describes, the armor of God, he's comparing that to the Roman armor. He's looking at Roman soldiers every day. So, those kind of things are important. So, he is in prison in this time. Um, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And Philippians were all written during this time. It was from about A.D. 60 to 62. So he was in prison for about two years and wrote those four letters. Um, The city itself, the city of Philippi, was originally known as Cronides. And that means the little fountains. So it was placed where it is because there was a lot of little springs, um, natural springs around the area. So that's the reason the settlement 
came there in the first time. It's a very, very ancient city. And then it was changed. Um, that, that, I mean, we're talking ancient Greece. It was called Cronides. And then in 357 B.C. Um, it is when the name changed to Philippi. And it was Philip II of Macedon conquered the region. Uh, Philip II of Macedon is Alexander the Great's father. So we're looking at, it's, it, this is fascinating history. I'm not going to go deep into it. But he went and conquered the, re, the region. If anybody want to, anybody want to guess why? What are, we heard a lot, we heard some about war this morning. We heard the second golden rule, which is he who has the gold makes the rule. Well, Philip II, there were gold mines in the area. So imagine that. A uh, ruler with lots of power goes into a region, conquers it because he wants the gold. Now, there was other stuff going on. There was lots of justification, but the gold didn't hurt. Um, that's, so that's a father of Alexander the Great. And when that happened, um, he took control. And there wasn't a whole lot. Uh, there was a few things here and there for the next couple hundred years. But in 168 B.C., so we're still talking... 168 years before Christ, the area became under Roman control. Um, and then in 42 B.C., so now we're getting close, uh, a little closer to Christ, there was a very famous battle um, fought there. And if you've read the book Julius Caesar, anybody else have to read that in school? I did. It was one of those things. Listen, kids, one of those things like, ah, this is, why am I reading this? Uh, actually, very important history in Julius Caesar, and it actually relates back to the book of Philippians. So I wish that they would have taught me that in school, but they didn't. Um, but 42 B.C., it was Mark Antony and Octavian. They gained revenge on Julius Caesar's assassin, assassins Brutus and Cassius. So the, that was, that took place, um, right there around the Philippian region. Um, there was an extremely bloody battle. It was 90,000 men on one side and 110,000 men on the other. That is hard to fathom. If you've ever been to an OU game, I think their stadium holds about 90,000 people. Picture that, that many people on a battlefield on one side. 40,000 casualties. We have no idea what that looks like. In one battle, 40,000 men lay dead. That's incredible. And during that time, that's, that's basically when the Roman, the Republic of Rome fell. And from that point, moving forward, it gave birth to the Roman Empire. Um, just keep that in mind as we go on. The, the, the vastness of that battle. When that happened, Philippi became a Roman province, and so many veterans of the Roman army settled there. It's where they were. The, the survivors of that battle 
many of them settled there. It was a good place. The, the location was, was good. It wasn't desert. It, the, you had the springs, lots of water, um, not too far. It was like 10 miles from the sea. And so there was trade routes through there. So it was a good place to settle. But so many Roman veterans settled there. I want you to think about, when you think about veterans, I don't know if we, we have some veterans in here. Um, Veterans have struggles. People who have been in war have struggles. That wasn't different back then. We can watch the movies where they're killing each other with swords and chopping each other's heads off and shooting arrows and all of that. And it, it, they romanticize it where it's like these tough guys and they were no doubt tough. But I don't care how tough they are. When they went home at night and they laid down to sleep, they had horrors in their mind. That's what comes with war. And so you got however many of these veterans living in this city, I think that's important to remember as we, as we study what Paul wrote. Paul's writing this letter to the church at Philippi, and there's no doubt veterans of, of war there, or sons of veterans of war, right? Do the, does the, veteran, does the, the problems that war brings, does it stop with the father? No. Their sons deal with it. Their daughters. Their spouses, right? War is, is a, it's a detrimental thing to the human mind. And when you're talking about 40,000 dead, there wasn't a single soldier on that field that didn't lose a friend. Not on either side. They all lost friends, close ones, sons, brothers, fathers. There were also probably many fatherless. Right? In the area. You don't lose 40,000 men without losing a lot of fathers. So that's all important as we just consider the context. Um, so many veterans settled there. Philippi became a Roman colony, which is a big deal, okay? Them being a Roman colony is important to understand. that They had the same rights as cities in Italy, at this point, Italy is quite a ways away, but they are Romans just as much as the, the cities of Italy, um, which is, is important. They, they, they had Roman law governing them. They had exemption from some taxes. There were many cities under the Roman Empire that had to pay extra taxes because they weren't Roman colonies. They were under more suppression. So being a Roman colony was a great thing for them. Um, they also had Roman citizenship, which was helpful. Do you remember when Paul was about to get scourged? He was in jail. They had arrested him, and they were about to scourge him. And he said, are you going to scourge me? I'm a Roman. And it's, it, you can just kind of see the guy like, whoa, I just about messed up. Can we scourge him? He's a Roman. He's a natural-born Roman citizen. Being a Roman citizen was a huge deal. It had it, it granted you protection, uh, more rights from the government, um, and and so it's that it was a big deal. And it was they were very like there was a lot of civic pride in that. It'd be kind of like um, it, like 
if Puerto Rico was granted statehood, which they're real close, you know, Puerto Rico's a, a territory of the U.S. When they probably when Oklahoma was, I wasn't here. But when that happens, there's a there's a pride that we've finally, you know, we've kind of arrived, we've achieved this. Well, that's kind of the way it was with Philippi. Um, it was the first church. So when we look at the church in Philippi, of course, it was established by Paul on um, his second missionary journey around AD 50. So a hundred years after that, or roughly a hundred years after that bloody war, um, we reached this. Um, it was first established in Europe. It, it was the first church established in Europe. And if you'll turn over to Acts, we'll actually read the account of when this happened. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. That's pretty amazing how the Spirit's just guiding, right, and actually stopping them. From going to certain places and preaching the gospel. Why? Because he has a he has a plan, he has a place, he has an appointment for them. In verse eight, so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So Macedonia is the region which in which Philippi is in. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. So here they are. They've, they've arrived at Philippi by the... By the vision and guiding of the Holy Spirit. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatria who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she, had, she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. And so there is the first convert in Philippi. Um, so there's a few things there. Evidently, there wasn't a lot of Jews in the area. And the reason I, I know that is because the, Paul went to the river to preach on the Sabbath day. Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue <clears throat> on the Sabbath. And he, he would always take the gospel to the Jews first. When he went into a city, he would go to the synagogue and share there. But there, was, there, wouldn't have, there must not have been a synagogue or that's what he would have done. But it looked like there was a small group of Jews probably gathering on the river um, because there wasn't enough. I think he had to have 10 devout Jewish men 
in order to have a synagogue. So there was less than 10 families, Jewish families. So it also shows you that the region was predominantly Gentile. And so he went to the river and, and he sees, he witnesses the first conversion to Christianity in the city of Philippi. So later on, as we look at the book of Philippians now, we know that the majority of the church were Gentiles. And the church itself seems, from the book that we can read and from history that we can read, seems healthy. And it seems very faithful. It's a very faithful assembly. uh, There's lots of positive encouragement. It's kind of nice coming from Joel, as I preached through Joel. Lots of uh, plagues and judgment. Well, now we're going to see a little more of the other side of that where we're seeing some positive encouragement. There's some small problems that Paul's going to address, and there's some issues of unity. But for the most part, he's very thankful, very thankful for them. So that's, that's the quick overview background of the book of Philippians. And so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to go through the first five verses, which is basically the introduction, the the salutation of the letter as Paul preaches it. So if look at Philipp back at Philippians, verse one, chapter one, says Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And a lot of Paul's letters start out very similar. But I don't want to overlook the depth of what is in this salutation, the depth of what's in this introduction to the letter. The scripture is powerful, and that means all of it. We don't want to overlook things just because it seems like there's not a lot there. So just look at that. Um, He introduces who it is that's writing it. It's Paul. And he mentions Timothy too, probably not as a co-author, but it's it's actually possible that Paul dictated the letter to Timothy. That was a very common thing in the time. Timothy was visiting him in prison, no doubt, at the time. So that's why he puts Timothy in there. He could have been dictating the letter to him, which means he's reading it and Timothy's writing it down for him. Or he's saying it, and Timothy's writing it down for him. Or it could have been just that Timothy wanted to give, you know, it'd be kind of like us, hey, tell him I said hi. Gives his approval of what's said. Um, but no doubt Timothy was there. And then he says, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Bond servants. That's, that's a word that I think is worth uh, delving into a little bit. The word bondservant comes from the Greek word duolos, which means slave. The, the actual definition of the word is one is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. So why does Paul call himself a slave? Him and Timothy were slaves to Christ. Well, the reason is because that's what they are. And that's what we are as well, if we're Christians. In Corinthians, he said it like this. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not 
your own. How many problems would we as Christians avoid in our lives if we would just remember that right there, that this is not our body. This is not our life. It belongs to Christ. He purchased it. He says in the next verse in Corinthians, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We don't have the right to do what we want. We have the right to do what Christ has commanded us. Why? Because he bought you. If you belong to him, he bought you. And that is, that is a strange concept in our culture, right? Slavery is such a strange concept in our culture. We hate it. And it's because of misuse. It's because it was wrong the way it was done by humans. But we are subservient to him. He calls the shots. This is not a bad thing. Okay? Let me, let me just show you something. There is no better place to be. There is no better, better position to be in than a slave to a perfect master. Why? You don't have to worry about anything. He's perfect. He provides everything you need. He has full control. You never have to worry about What's coming or what's going? Why? Because he's in control of it all. You just get to enjoy the perfect master and serving him. But sometimes I think we forget who he is. Sometimes I think we forget who we are and how our decisions are usually bad apart from him. And besides that, don't forget this. Every one of us is a slave. Everybody on this planet, from Adam until now, that has lived, has been a slave. The Bible makes it clear you are either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. So it is actually a great thing to be a slave to Christ. All that happened when you become born again, when you bow your knee to Christ, when he grants you repentance, what happens is he buys you, he bought you, and you change ownership. You're a slave to sin. He says, no longer, that's my son now. He will be my slave. He will come to me. I have paid the price. That cannot be undone. And then he says... So he says, bondservants, Timothy and Paul were bondservants to Christ. And then he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. There's another word I want to take a look at. Saints. The word word saint. The word is hagios. And it means to be set apart or holy. The Bible calls all believers saints. So it's not referring to some sort of super Christian that does better than everybody else. It doesn't refer to somebody that's living this great life and, oh, that we use it wrong. The world uses it wrong. Oh, that, that lady is a saint. What does that mean? Well, when people say that, they usually mean she's just really nice, she's really good, she's helpful, whatever. That's not what the word means. 
That's not what it means to be set apart, to be holy. The Catholics have a different definition of the word. And I, th- I want to bring it out because I think it's important that we understand this. The error of when the Catholics call somebody a saint, it, it's just wrong. It's unbiblical. They say, so the, the, they have a set of qualifications for a person to reach sainthood. There was a movie about this several years ago with Val Kilmer. It was interesting. First time I had ever heard about the qualifications to be a saint. But one of their qualifications is the person has to be dead for at least five years. It's interesting. I, I, don't, I don't understand that, but okay. They have to have evidence of leading a heroic life or a holy life. I'd like to meet that person that lived a holy life. wonder how Ray Comfort's law test would go on them. Anyway, they have to have verified miracles accredited to them. At least one um, to them or to their prayers. And usually for sainthood, it actually has to be two miracles. And this is a quote. The prayers being granted are seen as proof that the individual is already in heaven and hence able to intercede with God on others' behalf. This is the dead guy we're talking about. I'm just going to let you know, I don't need some dead guy with bad theology interceding on my behalf. I have one who is alive interceding on my behalf. Romans 8.34 It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. And he has said I'm a saint. And so I can say it. I'm a saint. Yes, I'm a saint, and you are a saint. So when I say the saints of sovereign grace, you know exactly who I'm talking about. It's those who believe in Christ, who He has bestowed His grace on. That's what makes a saint. has nothing to do with being dead. has nothing to do with your holiness. You don't have any. It has everything to do with His holiness being bestowed upon you. That's what the word means. To be set apart. Not because you did something, but because he set you apart. And he has called you a saint. And so don't use that word in any other way. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. And you are on a road to heaven. Glory be to God for that. So Paul calls all believers saints. He's talking to the believers at Philippi. They're set apart. They're holy. Why? Because they did such great things? No, because Jesus did such great things. And then he says, with the, we're getting a lot of vocabulary lesson today. That's kind of what this seems to be. But I think it's important. He says with the bishops and deacons, the word bishops, it means overseer. There is such a misunderstanding in Christianity today about leadership in the church. It, it, it is amazing. 
how confused we have become. And I think it kind of goes back to some of the stuff that Paul talked about in equipping hour. You hear something so many times it just becomes real. You see it so many times. We've seen church done this way so long. That's just the way it should be done. But that's not how the Bible teaches it. What? Yeah, it does. Show me. I can't. I mean, it happens a lot. People just assume, and I've done it myself. Don't think I'm pointing fingers here. i got three more pointing back at me. I've done it many times. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Really? Show it. Start turning. I know it's in there. You know, before Internet, you could search it. I, I just can't find it. I know it's there, and I would go on. Now, oh, I'll find it quick. Wow, Google can't find it. That must be the regime. They're hiding it. Go to another website. Can't find it? Wait a minute. I don't think it's in there. I've made a mistake my entire life, and so has many, many Christians. That doesn't mean they're not Christians. It means we need to teach them. We need to disciple them. We need to sh- get back in the Word of God. And that's so when we look at the word bishop, it means overseer. It's those who are responsible to lead, preach, and teach. They're to help the spiritually weak, care for the ch- church, and ordain other church leaders. The term is interchangeable with elder as the office of elder or a pastor. But you notice what it says there. With the, he's sending the letter to one church, right? The church at Philippi. But to the bishops, plural. The pastors, plural. The elders, plural. This is why we believe in a plurality of elders here. This is not the only place that's plural. Matter of fact, everywhere it talks about the elders of a church, he says, go and ordain elders, plural, in every city. Why? Because that's the way Paul established the churches. That's the way the church was set up by Jesus as he gave the authority of the scriptures to establish that that way. And that's enough. But if you want another 1,022 reasons, I think that's what we got to. No, it's way more than that. Of pragmatic reasons of why it's better that way? Come talk to us. We can make a list. One is, I need oversight. And so does Randy. And so does the Pauls. We need it. Newsflash. I'm a saint. But I don't always act like a saint. I should. But the reality is I don't. And neither do they. And so that's why we need oversight. And so that's why there's a plurality of elders. And then he says the deacons. And this word simply means those who serve. The word itself describes itself. However, there is an office of deacons. They're servants who are there to serve the church in any way needed. Basically, it is an amazing role, the call to a deacon. I'm very thankful for our deacons here. Very thankful. Thankless. It's a thankless job. And we're installing a new one this afternoon, and I am, I am 
just very thankful that God has sent him to us. We've prayed for him before he even came. The just, I mean, it is, it is an amazing position. Um, and it's a hard job. It's a hard job because they are a servant. And sometimes they get treated like servants. And I hope that's never with intention. And sometimes the work goes overlooked. I mean, how many people notice Brett sitting in the back? By himself, many times, keeping an eye on the door for us. I pray to God that's never noticed. Not that we wouldn't notice and thank him for that, but I pray, God, that, it, that we never have to notice how important that job is. In other words, I hope nobody ever comes through that door that needs stopped. But we know he's there if they do. That is an incredible service. You know, Boyd does things for us all the time. Most of which, we, a lot of it we don't ever even know. Or we find out about it well after it's done. The job of a deacon is doing the things that a lot of people don't want to do. And not asking for any credit for it. And that's the reason we've put A.J. forth. Because he's been doing that since he's been here. With a willing heart, with a joyful heart. And it is, so it is a pleasure that we're going to do that today. So that's what a deacon is. And I thought about this. I thought maybe there's young men, maybe there's old men in our congregation that desire the office of a deacon. Do you desire the office of a deacon? Your duty is simple. Find ways to serve the body of Christ and do it. Do you desire the office of a bishop? Do you want to be a pastor? What you should do is simple. Find ways to serve the body of Christ. And study to show yourself approved. And apply that study to find ways to serve the body of Christ, in whatever capacity. That's it. Service. Because the truth is bishops are simply servants as well. Simply servants that are called to stand before you and teach and preach and exhort and encourage. And so I pray God is raising up more deacons, more bishops, More elders in this church. I pray that's happening. It has been an amazing thing to see how much ability and how much desire and willingness we have in our congregation to go serve other congregations. We, I mean, we've been supplying the pulpit for Pontotoc County for the last two years, it seems like. I mean, we've sent a lot of guys out preaching and it's, it is such a blessing that God has has granted that to us. And I pray that he continues to do so. And I pray that young people continue to look for ways to serve this body and the church abroad. So that's the first verse. All right. Second verse, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a standard greeting. 
And, and it's just a reminder. I think when, when Paul says this from prison, grace to you and peace from God our Father, it lets you know, it reminds us that no matter what your situation, I mean, can you imagine us in prison? I mean, I, I, I can just speak for myself. You can examine yourself and see what you would be like if you got thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. For two years, man, I don't know if I would have this thankful of a heart. I pray God I would, and I know the only way I would is by his power. But Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Reminds us that the grace is granted to us by God. And no matter the situation, it is there. And it is sufficient It also reminds us that only true peace in this world is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have true peace without Him. It's impossible. And you can have true peace in the midst of a storm. You can have true peace in the midst of a battle with Christ. And you can be in the most pristine, quiet place and have no peace without Him. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. This is where I think we can learn so much just from Paul's salutations. How, How do you pray? Do you continually give thanks for other groups of believers? Do you give thanks for this group? Of believers, for this body of believers. Do I? We should. We should be extremely thankful for this body of believers and for other groups of believers all around Ada, all around Oklahoma, all around the world. Because anybody that God has blessed, any congregation that God has blessed, and they have truth being taught there. That's our brothers and sisters. We may not know them, but we should love them. And I know this. I know that I should be more thankful than I am, period. And I'm guessing probably most everybody in here has that same testimony. We should be more thankful for what God has done to us. In verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all, with joy. It's obvious Paul was a man who spent a lot of time in prayer. He was constant. Listen to what John Gill said. He said that he was constant and assiduous at the throne of grace and was concerned for others as well as himself, for all the churches and for this church and all the saints in it. That's what we see in Paul's writings. That's what we see in Paul's hearts. <clears throat> Do we have that in our hearts? And it says with joy, he, he did, Paul did not only thank God for them, but he, when he prayed on their behalf, specific requests for them. So he was thankful for them. And then he prayed for specific things for them. As we go through this book, you'll notice it's, it's very positive. Um, it's, it's, much, it's probably more positive than some of Paul's other books. He's, we'll see that they have helped financially. They've helped, they've, they've come alongside him in prayer. 
Um, and, and we see such a strong faith from this church that helps with the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And he's very thankful for that. And so it is with joy. Paul prays with joy. And then in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He was especially thankful for the fellowship they had together in the gospel. He's thankful for like-minded believers. And let me tell you something. We have no idea how blessed we are to have like-minded believers around us. I remember when I first started seeing some truths in Scripture through some teaching and started kind of coming to the doctrines of grace. This was man, 15, 16 years ago, maybe 17. It's, it's been a long time. Being reformed at the time was not cool. It still isn't in a lot of circles, but I was reformed when reformed wasn't cool. There was a period of time. Now, I, I am thankful because it, basically me and Ronnie Qualls were together in this. And I was thankful for him, or I really would have thought I was losing my mind. But there was a period of time before I really, I, I knew who Randy was, but before I really talked to him anything, I thought we were going crazy. Like, how are we the only ones that see this? Something's wrong with us. I didn't like altar calls. I was the only one in Christianity other than some cults that didn't like altar calls, I thought. And so when I, as things progressed and we learned and we started meeting, I remember the first time we went to, it's called the Fellowship Conference. It was actually the very first one. Some of you have been to it down in Denton, and it's gotten really big. Well, the very first one of those was in Norman, and it was just about four churches that got together, and they just were like-minded. And we heard about it, because Ronnie would call anybody and everybody. He didn't have to know them. He'd just call people and start talking to them. If you know him, you know that's true. Well, he found some people, and they said, hey, they're having this thing in Norman. You want to go? Yeah, absolutely. So we went, and there was a church... I don't know, 120, 150 people packed in there. And it was the first time ever I could feel like worshiping with all like-minded people and a a group of them, not just a little handful that we had. And it was an amazing thing. It was an amazing blessing. And then we would talk afterwards and and they, they knew what I was saying, but they had terms for it. Things like sovereignty and, and uh, you know, regeneration and those terms that I didn't know, but I kind of understood the concepts. Well, they started explaining, and then all of a sudden you find books, and, well, there's other people that believe this. That is a major blessing. It was so, it was so obvious how much of a blessing that was when you were on a desert like that. And I think sometimes today when people are saved and they're saved into good theology and they're saved and there's a lot of like-minded people, we take that for granted. We shouldn't. We should be extremely thankful for the fellowship that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me say this, too. We should be extremely thankful for the fellowship we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, even with people that don't agree with us. 
on all the points of theology. If they're Christians, if they're born again, they're called a saint. And we can name them as our brother or our sister. So let's not forget that. But we're thankful we have that kind of fellowship here. And do we thank God enough for that? Probably not. Do we thank God for the many blessings that we have? Probably not enough. Probably not enough. So as we finish up Thanksgiving weekend, as we, as we close that period, we move on to the Christmas season, let's not forget to be thankful all year. And so I'll close with this, with this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, Gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God, and it is one that the poorest of us can make and be not poorer but richer for having made it. Your position in this life means nothing if you are in Christ. You can be thankful no matter your position in this life because your position with Him is far greater than anything you could ever achieve here. And so now, with this mood of thankfulness, with this idea of thankfulness, I'm going to move straight into our communion 